This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Frances Moon. I'm the Executive Manager of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's launch of the book Offshore Behind the Wire on Manus and Nauru by Madeleine Gleeson. As we gather, we acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here with us today. And we would also like to acknowledge and thank our hosts here tonight, Hassel Studios, for very generously uh, having us here in their beautiful space. Thank you. Uh, we have many special guests this evening, um, but we particularly want to acknowledge Andrew and Renata Caldor, and also Cathy Bale, the CEO of UNSW Press. Without all three of you, we would not be here tonight. So thank you very much for your support. I'd also like to offer the apologies of Professor Jane McAdam, the director of the Caldor Centre, who is unfortunately able to be with us due to illness tonight, uh, but she wants to pass on her uh, very best wishes um, for our event this evening. And on behalf of the Caldor Centre, I just wanted to say how proud we are of this magnificent achievement by our research associate, Madeline Gleeson. The Caldor Centre was founded in 2013 with the goal of generating rigorous evidence-based contributions to the debate on refugees and asylum seekers to provide people with a basis to make informed decisions about refugee policy and to, the, to encourage the formation of policy that is consistent with international law and human rights principles. And I think that Andrew and Renata would agree with me in saying that this book by Madeline is precisely the kind of work that serves that purpose. It's based on thorough research. It sets out the facts about what's happening uh, under our policy of offshore processing, and it enables readers to make up their own mind about the policy. It makes an important contribution to the national conversation and could not be more timely. So it's, a, it's with great pleasure that we launch this book this evening. Um, to begin the formalities this evening, I would like to welcome Philippa McGuinness. She is the executive publisher of New South Publishing, and she has a wealth of experience in non-fiction publishing and editing. She's also the industry representative on the Humanities and Creative Arts panel of the Australian Research Council, and she has been instrumental in shepherding this book through to this point. So please join me in welcoming Philippa. Thank you very much, Francis. And like I know everybody who's here tonight, I'm absolutely thrilled to have even played the smallest part in Madeline Gleeson's book, Offshore. And I'm very pleased to be able to say a few quick words, and rest assured they will be quick because I know that you all want to hear from the launcher and from the author. I first heard of Madeline Gleeson and her work towards the end of 2014 through her esteemed colleague, Jane McAdam. Um, and I'm very sorry that Jane can't be with us tonight. And Jane, we have published Jane's book, Refugees, Why Seeking Asylum is Legal and Australia's Policies Are Not. Jane commended Madeline's 
so highly, and you will all know that a commendation from Professor McAdam is to be taken very seriously indeed. And so, as wrong-headed as it seems now, part of me wondered what Madeline's book, this before I met her, or knew very much about the book, could add to what we already knew. And naively, when I first met Madeline, I planned to ask her when she would be leaving for these remote islands to undertake research. Well, the real situation became very clear very quickly. And I remember, and I'm sure Madeline remembers this too, that we met for the first time at our Fuji office on a very memorable day because I think that our meeting started probably at pretty much exactly the same time the Mint Cafe siege was started. And so I walked out of our meeting feeling overwhelmed, frankly, by everything that Madeline had told me and inspired and committed to publishing the book. And yet, even in spite of the horrors unfolding in the city, one of my main memories of that day is how deeply impressed I was with this young woman's commitment to telling the story of asylum seekers on Manus and Nauru, and my own confidence that she would do the story justice. That confidence has never wavered, as you will all agree when you read the book. Although I must admit, I did worry about her personal equilibrium in the midst of conferring with sources to corroborate such stories of abuse, despair and misery with such intensity over so much time. So I was relieved when she mentioned just before she delivered the final manuscript that she'd been going to the gym quite a bit. <laughs> and reading the book in its entirety makes me realise, and you will too, how formidable her achievement is and how necessary this book we cannot pretend that we did not know. So Offshore is a book that my colleagues at UNSW Press and I are very proud to publish under our New South imprint. I would like to take this opportunity for thanking Madeline's family, friends, and her colleagues at the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, her supporters, and her informants for all the backup you have provided. All publishers want the books that we publish to make a difference, to have an impact. And at the start of what we know will be a very long election campaign, our hopes for this book could not be higher. Madeline, all power to you. We are very fortunate to have Julian Burnside here with us to launch the book Offshore. Julian is widely recognised for his work as a barrister, an author, and a human rights and refugee advocate. He joined the Victorian Bar in 1976 and took silk in 1989. He is a former president of Liberty Victoria and has acted pro bono in many human rights cases, in particular concerning the treatment of refugees, including the Tampa litigation. Julian was awarded the Human Rights Law Award by the then Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission and was also elected as an Australian Living Treasure. He received the Australian Peace Prize in 2007 from the Peace Organisation Australia and in 2014 was awarded the Sydney Peace Prize by the Sydney Peace Foundation. In 2009 he was made an officer of the Order of Australia for his service as a human rights advocate and for his services to the arts and the law. It's a great pleasure to welcome Julian Burnside.
Francis. Um, can I reiterate um, what Francis said? We are deeply indebted to Andrew and Renata Caldor for the idea of this centre and for the support this centre has given. Without it, I mean, you know, Madeline is a uh, research uh, associate at the Caldor Centre, and without their support, this book would not have come into existence. It's a really very fine thing, and I, I say that genuinely, not just because you know, we're here and we have to say these things. It's, it is fantastic. The Caldor Centre is brilliant. Can I also uh, say how pleased I am to see Sir Gerard Brennan here tonight, uh, one of the great Chief Justices of this country, and uh, we miss you greatly. Uh, and, and also Jeff Robertson. Very good to see you back on home ground, Geoffrey. Um, now, I, uh, to the book. I've launched quite a few books in my time, and I always make a point of reading the book that I'm due to launch, and sometimes that can be a chore. Um, I've never launched a book which I found as fascinating and engaging as offshore. Um, I thought I knew a fair bit about the treatment of asylum seekers in Australia and in Madison, Nauru, but this book brings together so many details uh, about the um, about the circumstances in those places, details of which I was unaware, that I was torn. Part of me couldn't put the book down because it was so engrossing, and um, part of me couldn't cope with any more of the searing detail that comes from every page. The cruelty uh, with which we treat men, women, and children who've done nothing worse than come to this country asking for a place where they can live in safety. Um, now, the book is meticulously documented. Every assertion of fact uh, is supported by a footnote reference and uh, traced to a verifiable source. In fact, I suspect that it's the only book ever published which has got nearly 100 pages of footnote references and yet which is truly <coughs> engaging and engrossing <laughs> and genuinely compelling. I don't know how you manage that. Um, it, it covers Australia's detention regime since 2012, and what comes through is quite clear. Um, Australia takes both people and mistreats them um, primarily for the deterrent objective of making other people think that standing their ground and facing persecution is preferable to coming to Australia and being persecuted here. Uh, in fact, one of the chapters begins with a quote from a Rohingya Burmese who said, in Burma, they shoot you. In Australia, they simply destroy you slowly. And I have heard many refugees express similar sentiments over the years. Um, of course, the reason we do it is, um, well, it varies, but there are two ostensible reasons to put forward. One of them is because we're so worried about them drowning. So worried about them drowning that if they don't drown, we punish them. And we're also, of course, deeply troubled about these vile people called people smugglers. Uh, and it's an interesting thing that people smugglers are treated by the politicians as if they're all morally equivalent, as if they're all in the same moral basket. And if that's right, then the worst, most hard-hearted, most careless, most venal people smuggler has to be in the same moral basket with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Oscar Schindler, and Gustav Schroeder. Gustav Schroeder, who of course was the captain of the St. Louis, which 
left Hamburg in May of 1939 with 900 Jews on board. He undoubtedly was a people smuggler by any test, and uh, he pulled every stunt he could to get those people to safety. Eventually, he had to return from the southern hemisphere back to Europe, put them ashore in Antwerp, and more than half of them died in concentration camps because he could not achieve his people smuggling objective. Of course, if people are dissuaded from using people smugglers in their attempts to get to Australia, then if they die at the hands of the Taliban or at the hands of the remnants of the Rajapaksa regime in Sri Lanka or any other uh, murderous regime, we don't know about it. And it seems that what the politicians want is for us not to be aware of the deaths of people who would otherwise ask for our help. Um, but Bonhoeffer, Schindler and Schroeder were all people smugglers, all people who were prepared to take immense risks and put principles ahead of practicalities and politics. And tonight I honour their memory as I'm sure you do. For political leaders in this country, um, especially self-proclaimed Christians it seems, to prefer politics over principle uh, is as disappointing as it is familiar. Um, the book could, this book could, I think, be the first item on the indictment of Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison for crimes against humanity. <laughs> and uh, although it gets uh, only a brief mention in the book because you have written quite a lot, um, uh, it's interesting to recall that in 2015, a suggestion emerged that someone in Australian Border Force had paid money to a people smuggler, $30,000, to persuade them to turn around and take their passengers back to Indonesia. Uh, the opposition got onto it, and it ran for a while in the press, and then it suddenly evaporated. We heard no more about it. The, the received view is that it must have been people from ACES doing it and they're allowed to break the laws, so it didn't matter. But however that may be, it got me, I mean, it was exciting because it means that would have made us look like we were engaged in people smuggling. Well, I had a bit of a look at the Commonwealth Criminal Code, which, which defines the crime of people smuggling. And in our law, it has only three elements, which is that a person arranges or facilitates the entry of another person into a country of which they're not a national, in circumstances where they won't go through the usual passport controls. Now, while we may have um, been denied any knowledge of the on-water matter of $30,000, we do know, because it's widely boasted of, that our government turns boats back, turns them back to Indonesia. And if the boats are a bit rickety, we use very expensive, dinky little um, orange lifeboats to put the passengers in those and push them back towards Indonesia. Now, when we do that, uh, we're certainly facilitating their entry into Indonesia. Do we think they're Indonesians? Probably not. Do we think they'll go through passport control? Probably not. Which means we are probably, as a country, engaged in people smuggling, contrary to our own laws, and we boast about it um, so much. Well, actually, it may lend some support for the government's constant repeated views that people smugglers are vile people. <laughs> um, now, that is just one aspect of the hypocrisy with which Australian politicians have dealt with uh, people arriving here asking for protection. 
Scott Morrison's hypocrisy is clear to see elsewhere in the pages of Madeline's book, um, although he's much, she's much more constrained about it than I am. Um, for example, Scott Morrison said that Reza Barati had escaped from Manus and had been killed outside the detention centre on Manus on the what, 17th of February 2014. Um, and, and then he had to back down a bit because Benham Sattar and another gave eyewitness statements very soon in which they made it clear that, that Reza Barati had been trying to get back to his room in the detention centre, had never left the detention centre, was running back towards his room, was confronted with, uh, by one of the guards who had a long piece of timber with two long nails driven through the far end of it. He swung up wildly at Reza Barati and hit him twice on the head. Barati fell to the ground, bleeding profusely from the scalp. He was then surrounded by a dozen people on the Australian payroll, people whose job it was to protect the detainees. And they took it in turns to kick him in the head and in the torso until finally one of them, a local who worked for the Salvation Army but was being paid indirectly by Australia, picked up a large rock and brought it crashing down on Razor Barati's head and that killed him. And as Benham Sattar said in his statement, I knew it killed him because the next time someone kicked him, he did not flinch. Now, Scott Morrison was very reluctant to acknowledge that Razor Barati had been killed inside the detention centre, uh, but it was absolutely clear that he was. And of course, um, Scott Morrison also said that Hamid Khazai uh, had been evacuated to a hospital in Brisbane and was receiving the best medical treatment. He forgot to add that at that time, he was, um, that is Hamid Khazai, was brain dead and, and was only being kept on life support until his family could be contacted. Uh, and he was brain dead because the original evacuation had been bungled so badly by the Immigration Department in Canberra that it took 24 hours longer to get him out of Manus than it should have taken uh, when the doctor said that his evacuation was urgent. Um, anyone who saw the Four Corners treatment of Hami Kazai's death uh, the other week uh, would probably share my view that there's at least an arguable case that his death was caused by criminal negligence in the Immigration Department in Canberra, and it would be fascinating to find out more details. Of course, under Morrison, as emerges plainly from Madeline's book, detainees uh, have been the victims of sexual assaults, which have not resulted in any criminal prosecutions in Nauru. Self-harm and suicide have reached epidemic proportions, and um, Sarah will know this, uh, this is apparently, as Mr Dutton has told us, it's our fault. We, apparently, we the refugee advocates, caused those deaths and, um, and all the suicide attempts are down to us, including, of course, Omid, um, say the children workers who were desperately trying to do what they could to save children from the harm that they were suffering, harm that the government knew they were suffering, um, say the children workers were accused by Scott Morrison uh, of having engaged in a campaign to cast doubt on the government's border protection policies. Months after the Save the Children people were uh, expelled from Nauru, the Moss Review found that the allegations against them were false, and very recently it's been revealed 
that the government has come to a quiet confidential agreement with Save the Children by which Save the Children has been compensated for the harm done to its reputation. And during all of this, every Sunday, Scott Morrison would go to church to demonstrate his uh, Christian virtues. Peter Dutton uh, was appointed Immigration Minister by Tony Abbott very early in 2015. His appointment was, of course, uh, continued by Malcolm Turnbull when he became Prime Minister. Um, Dutton presided over the introduction of the Australian Border Force Act. Um, among other things, the Border Force Act makes it a criminal offence for a person who works in the detention system to disclose anything which they learn in their capacity as a worker in the detention system. So, in ordinary civil society, if a doctor, for example, becomes aware of a case of child abuse, it's a criminal offence not to report it. But if the same doctor becomes aware of a case of child abuse in Nauru, in the detention system, then it's a criminal offence for that doctor to report it. Uh, and I don't remember who said it, but someone once said that when it becomes a criminal offence to report a crime, you know the place is being run by criminals. Um, I <coughs> won't say any more. Madeline's uh, book reveals numerous cases of very serious child abuse and child sex abuse happening in the detention system on Nauru. And yet, for some reason, the Australian people seem entirely untroubled by these things, uh, which at least a small group of us know about. And Dutton, as I said, blames it all on us. Um, what this book makes clear is that Australia is brutalising anyone uh, who risks their life to come to Australia to seek safety. And given that we played an important role in the formulation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the wake of the Second World War, it's a sobering irony that we're now playing a leading role in degrading the idea of human rights. And uh, for those of you who are interested in the role that we played, Jeff's book, uh, A Statute of Liberty, has a chapter in it which explains in great detail the role which Australia played in the formulation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. At a time when our population was, what, four and a half million, five million people, we were a minnow internationally, and yet we played a very significant role in putting it together. And incidentally, a little circumstance which I'm sure Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison are not aware of when they call asylum seekers illegal, Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights gives every human being the right to seek asylum any place they can reach. Um, it is uh, a great tragedy that the scandals which are going on in our name, in the ruin Manus, as detailed in Madeline's book, are all being tolerated in Australia because of the dishonest rhetoric of John Howard, Philip Ruddock, uh, Kevin Rudd, Tony Abbott, Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton, all of whom are willing to refer to both people as illegal, which is directly inconsistent with Article 14 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, last week, uh, and this is much too recent for it to get a, a look in in Madeline's book, Stephen Charles QC had an op-ed piece in the Fairfax Media. Stephen Charles uh, was a judge of the Court of Appeal in Victoria. I knew Stephen pretty well at the bar. 
I think it's fair to say he's a blue ribbon liberal conservative. In his op-ed piece, he observed, the camps in Manus Island and Nauru have long since ceased to be mere detention centres. They are now concentration camps. Now, that statement, which if any of us had said it 10 years ago, would have been, would have been dismissed as hysterical alarmism. When Stephen Charles wrote it, it did not meet with that sort of response, but neither did it cause the wave of concern which the facts justified. Um, it is uh, um, a great tragedy that an observation like that can be taken seriously by a person who is a very serious commentator and yet not create a sense of social concern. And as we slip down a dangerous moral slope, um, our politicians just assure us it's all for our own good. We're being protected. We're being protected. And that's marvellous. Now, modern human rights discourse obviously started uh, immediately after the Second World War as the world st stood back in horror and drew breath at seeing what had been revealed in the concentration camps of Europe. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt got together and we were part of the party uh, to put together the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Most civilised nations recognised uh, that these things should never be able to happen, to happen again. And the introductory words of the Universal Declaration are really well worth reading because they, they give you a sense of the horror and the hope which inspired that document. Um, the the uh, tide, I fear, began to turn on the 11th of September 2001 when all of a sudden human rights came to look something different, uh, at least in the Western world. Now, September 11, 2001 is an important date uh, for another reason. Um, I don't know how many people in this room would be aware, but the Tampa litigation um, was fought out in the federal court in Melbourne, and the trial judgment was handed down at 2.15 in the afternoon Melbourne time on the 11th of September, 2001. And just 10 hours later, the attack on America happened, and all of a sudden you didn't have terrorists anymore, you only had Muslim terrorists. And you didn't have boat people anymore, only Muslim boat people. And that's when John Howard started calling boat people illegal. Now that happened, of course, just two months before the election of that year, and although um, Howard had been regarded as something of an outsider um, in the 2001 election, his stand on Tampa and his ability, by sheer good luck, to elide boat people and terrorism uh, and illegality um, got him romping home to a great victory. Um, now, I have two fears arising out of all of this. And I, I really hope I'm wrong on both of them, actually. But many, some of you will be aware that from the what, 1880s to about the 1930s, Francis Galton's theory of eugenics was quite widely regarded, even as enlightened judges Oliver Wendell Holmes on the US Supreme Court uh, embraced the theory of eugenics uh, in at least one judgment. And intelligent and decent people accepted that the theory of eugenics was reasonable until Hitler gave it a bad name and now, you never, it's not if 
not as if eugenics is regarded as simply a bad idea. It's just not even talked about. It's been rubbed off the map. And, and in the same way, spiritualism. Uh, spiritualism was taken very seriously by very intelligent people in the late 19th century. But it sort of disappeared. It was what, an artifact, I think, of the early days of photography that uh, made it possible to create the appearance of spirit figures appearing in what looked like otherwise realistic circumstances. But for whatever reason, spiritualism just isn't talked about anymore. Not that it's regarded as a bad idea, it's just not thought of at all. And what I fear is that since the tide turned on September 11, 2001, we may, in 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, hear people say, oh yes, second half of the 20th century. They used to talk about human rights back then. Remember that. And human rights might have fallen into the pile with eugenics and spiritualism as ideas that are not only disregarded, but ideas that are no longer even entertained. Ideas that aren't thought about anymore. And that would be a profound tragedy and will guarantee that these things can happen again. Um, and the other thing I fear is this. I think, like many people in the community, that Malcolm Turnbull will probably win the election later this year. Uh, I think on balance, he's probably the better of the two candidates for leading the country. But does not mean I'm enthusiastic about his team. Uh, um, but it, also, it worries me that if he does win the election with a reduced majority, which I think is likely, he may find himself rolled in the party room and will have Scott Morrison as the new Prime Minister. And that is something which I think is deeply disturbing. Um, I think I would ask all of you, with those two fears in mind, please do a couple of things. Make sure and get a copy of this book and read it and understand the message it gives you. Second, regard it as the political epitaph of Scott Morrison, should he ever have the good fortune to become the leader of this country, because frankly what this country needs is people who know how to lead, people who know what is a bad idea and what is a good idea and who are willing to stand up and say, unpopular though it may be, mistreating innocent human beings is a bad idea and we need not do it. And here is why you should accept that view. Anyone who reads this book will come out the other end thinking, how on earth did we find ourselves doing this? It's a marvellous book. I'm delighted to have been asking you. Thank you.
Marcus and Philippa and Julian for the very kind words today and for everyone here, who I know is here, uh, because you support me and have done the whole way through. Just at the start, anyone standing over here would you like to come and take a seat on the steps? No? All right. Um, I've heard quite a lot since people have started reading this book about the details that they didn't know until they read it, and I'm, I can't say I'm happy to hear they've learnt those details, but I'm delighted that that is exactly what the purpose of this book was, which was to strip away the rhetoric and the distraction and the extreme polarising uh, nonsense, really, that surrounds a lot of the debate, and strip it back down to the hard facts and evidence. Uh, and a lot of what the book says is almost the opposite of evidence, it's what we don't know. It's allegations that have been untested, that haven't been interrogated, but which have been consistently raised for years on end, and which really deserve some proper judicial consideration. Uh, but especially in light of Julian's speech, I don't think I will go into all those details today. That's what the book is for. I thought I would just speak briefly about one thing which is not in the book, the, the lack of details. And it's something that I expected to find when I set out and started this research project. And that is the underlying reason why and the thought process behind this policy. I don't know how many people in this room have had the delight of reading hundreds of pages of Hansard. It's not a pleasant experience, but I've done it. Many, many hundreds, probably more than a thousand. Uh, it showed me two things. First of all, I would never like to be a politician because it's just bickering back and forth and you never get to the heart of any issue. And the second thing is that there is no reason. When you go back, and I went back 2012, I went back 2011, 2010, you keep going back further and further, and I was trying to understand the reason for this policy. What was its purpose? What was the end game? Let's presume we weren't going to hear it on the public forum, but what was the thinking behind it? And I have looked at about, at years, really, I've looked the whole way through, I've looked at years' worth of the evidence and in my interviews and in every source I can find. I am yet to find one government, and this goes the whole way through, from the Gillard government, the Rudd government, Abbott government, and continuing now, I have failed to find one government that has thought through this policy to the end. There has never been an answer of where these people are supposed to go once they are found to be refugees. And so we end up with the situation we have now, which is several hundred people who have been recognised as refugees and won't be resettled in Australia, we've heard that line a lot, but there is no answer of where they will go. Because Nauru has said they can't stay there permanently, they're just in limbo there until that ends at some unknown point. And the one country that offered an answer was Papua New Guinea. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, that entire arrangement has now fallen through as well. So I would invite you as you read the book to maybe see if you can find what I couldn't. After all of the years I've spent rigorously analysing every piece of evidence I can find, I can't work out what the end purpose of this policy was ever supposed to be. And there have been a few suggestions. There has been a suggestion that offshore processing was only ever designed to break people, to make people feel so desperate and horrible that they just gave up and went home. And there might be members of successive governments for whom that is very true, and there are certainly actions which defy logic unless that is the explanation for it. Um, and what we've seen in the last week of a young woman who's been raped more than once on Nauru and is epileptic and is now pregnant and requiring determination and has been shipped to Papua New Guinea where that's unlawful, and you have an immigration minister saying that he has no duty of care, it does make you wonder, are you just trying to break these people? 
But then there are others in, in government right, and in power now and previously who I think genuinely have wanted to find an answer to this problem, genuinely believe this is a concern and do want to find a humane way through it, but are completely lost as to what that answer might be. So what I'm hoping this book will achieve is inform everyone of the basic facts so that we can stop believing and delving into this rhetoric, some of which we've already discussed earlier about evil people smugglers and the only choice is offshore processing or drowning. Let's move beyond that and let's start a proper constructive conversation about how we can work out an end game and move beyond this and, and finally fix the situation we have. So thank you. I should probably just mention a few thank yous. Uh, I wanted to repeat the thank yous that have been done together, especially for the people who've spoken tonight. It's very kind. Thank you. Um, my family and friends and partner, as you were right, Philippa, it was not an easy task producing a book like this, and I couldn't have done it without all the people that supported me through that. The Cowboys and also everyone at the Cowboys Centre who helped on a daily basis, especially uh, Francis and Kelly and Jane, who sadly couldn't be here today, uh, but he's represented by her family all the same. Always supporting. Uh, and everybody at New South. I do remember that first meeting we had about the book, and it wasn't an uplifting meeting or an uplifting day, uh, but I constantly felt like I had the support the whole way through of, of Emily as well, and probably couldn't have done it without constantly feeling that support. I feel lucky because people say, isn't it difficult to write a book, negotiating the politics of it, and I think I just had a, a blessing because the whole way through, everyone was very positive and, and supportive of it all. Um, and yes, I would also like to thank the informants and the people that have come forward, a lot of whom have done so on the public record and have had their reputation scratched as a result of it, um, and for all of those who are understandably too nervous to come forward but have made an effort privately, either to myself or to others, made an effort to, to make sure the facts do get out, um, I'd like to thank them as well. And of course, to everyone in this room here who's come out tonight, thank you very much.